Praise the Lord for that glorious truth. Amen, beloved? If you can, go ahead and grab your Bibles while you're standing and open up to the book of Hebrews. It is a joy to be back with you this morning as I see you opening up God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll read the first 14 verses together this morning. God's Word reads, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my, my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that he continues to speak to us through the Bible. We ask that your spirit would teach us and empower us to rightly respond to the truth that we are taught. May your word be implanted deep within us and may it continually transform us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. Before we get into this text, I want to extend a thank you to many of you who have been praying uh, for beloved Mark and, and his wife, Ruthann, and, and their family. Um, as of this morning, Mark's update is, I feel great. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, and this is a little off the course of Hebrews this morning, but it is the fruit of God in our beloved brother. As I went to visit him in the hospital, everybody in that hospital heard of Jesus Christ. I don't think he was there because of a heart attack. He was there as a messenger. He was there to deliver hope in Jesus Christ. Every nurse, every individual, every doctor that came in, Mark would tell them about Christ and said, if you die today, do you know for certain that you're going to heaven? And I watched nurse after nurse, one nurse named Christian, 
And he said, Christian didn't believe. He said, Christian, how could you have a name like that and not be a believer? And so as you pray for Mark, continue to pray for all those he has witnessed to in the hospital. Um, he is doing well. Pray for uh, Ruth Ann as uh, she comes alongside him and cares for him. But this morning we continue in our study of Hebrews, and we're thankful to God for his faithfulness to his people, and we'll continue to see that in, in the book of Hebrews. And as we get back into our study of Hebrews, you know, since Jesus walked the earth, people have tried to re redefine him as anything other than God. People have labeled him as just simply a great teacher, or, or perhaps a, a really good man, maybe a very moral person. They could even say he was a perfect example of what sacrificial living looks like. I mean, you could describe Jesus in, in many ways that are very similar to this, and nobody gets offended. But once you say that he is God, people become unsettled. Why? Because Jesus being God means that he has all authority. It means that what he says is truth. You know, many people would be okay if Jesus was elevated higher than man, but just not to the level of God. They wanted to be lower than God. One possibility would be to say that he's like an angel. Now, this is not far-fetched. For some of you who have had people come to your door and knocking on your door or standing in a mall or in a park with little brochures, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. This is what they teach. And by proclaiming that he is an angel, they portray Jesus as a created being instead of Almighty God. But in contrast to that, the author of Hebrews begins his, his epistle, and he clearly proclaims that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, that he is the creator of the world, and that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So make no mistakes about it. Jesus is God. He is not like a God. He is not similar to God. He is not one of many. He is God himself. God is spirit. And Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. He is the identical likeness and nature of God. He shares the same substance of God. In Christ, the invisible became visible. He is the personal manifestation of deity. We read this in, God, in John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 8. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He being Jesus, has made him known. Jesus saying of himself in John 49, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So make no mistake about it. Jesus is God himself. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And as we study this epistle of Hebrews, it becomes quickly apparent in this opening chapter that there must have been some interest in exalting angels or perhaps placing Jesus on the same level as an angel or referring to him as an angel. Why? Because as we look at this opening chapter, it refers to angels seven times in this chapter alone. 
Now recall the original audience was Jewish believers. Some of those believers were tempted because of difficulty and challenges of living during those times to turn back to Judaism. And with that in mind, it's important for us to note that the old covenant was delivered by angels to man. In Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, you who received the law as delivered by angels, speaking to a Jewish audience. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 also says that the law was put in place through angels. And so, rightly so, this gave the Jews an elevated view and a higher regard for angels. But some even worshipped angels. What became known later as Gnosticism included the worship of angels. And we know from reading the scriptures that this apparently was a problem in the Colossian church. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul wrote, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. There were those who were actually teaching this. That angels were to be worshipped. Now, angels are amazing. Uh, let's make no mistakes about, about it, but they are never to be worshipped. They are created beings. They've been created by God to fulfill all of his purposes. Angels are mentioned in the scriptures over 160 times. 160 times in the New Testament alone. In the Old Testament, another 100 times or more we see angels referred to. Angels are referred to as collectively sons of God. They're referred to as heavenly hosts, ministering spirits, holy ones. I want you to think of some artwork that you might see of angels. Sometimes you see a, like an infant chubby little thing with wings and looks all cute. And you're like, oh, they're there. But if you know when angels appeared to man in Scripture, that's not how man responded. They fell on their face and the angel would respond, fear not. We know that they are created beings. Psalm 148, in verse 2 and verse 5, you read in Psalm 148, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. They are created beings. As you go through the scripture, many times angels are invisible. Recall the experience of Balaam. When the Lord had opened his eyes so he could see the angel that was blocking his way. We read about that in Numbers 22. In verse 31, we read, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. That's how people responded when they saw angels. Or consider Elisha's servant who had his eyes open so that he could see that he was protected by encircling chariots of fire. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we read about that. In verse 17 specifically, we read, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Could you imagine if we could see this at all times? I believe there's a reason why God has limited that. 
for this very reason that the author of Hebrews is writing, they're not to be worshipped. But typically when angels are visible, they have a human-like appearance and they're often mistaken for man. Later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the author of Hebrews writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So they appear as man. We also know from Scripture that they're intelligent and, and they have emotion. We know that they rejoice in heaven when a sinner repents. We also know that they do not marry or, or they're unable to procreate. It means they do not die. They cannot multiply. And so the number that was created will always exist. So how many angels are there? The Bible says there are countless. Daniel 7 verse 10, Revelation 5 verse 11 speak of thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads. Say, well, how many is that? Well, Hebrews puts it differently. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it refers to angels being innumerable. There are a lot. Some have estimated trillions. I don't know. Myriads upon myriads. Scripture also defines different classes of angels. You have cherubim and you have seraphim. Cherubim reveal the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And they guard his holiness. And seraphim, which is only mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6, they attend to the worship of God. I want to read to you the description of the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. Listen to the way the seraphim are described. We read, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. This is the description of an incredible creature created by God to worship God. We also know there's some distinction by some angels who are given names. There are two specific, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel appears in Daniel in chapters 8 and 9 and also in Luke chapter 1. And Michael is mentioned in Daniel chapter 10 also in Jude and in Revelation chapter 12. We know that Michael is the head of the armies of heaven and Gabriel's called the mighty one. So angels have many functions. Many functions that include but are not limited to, they carry out God's judgment. They serve God. They praise and worship God. Angels are messengers. Angels also protect God's people. They minister to believers, as we'll see in our text this morning. And though angels are awesome beings, there is no comparison between them and the excellencies of Christ. And that is the point of the author of Hebrews in the text before us this morning. Though they are amazing, though they are wonderful, they don't compare to Christ. He is superior to angels. And so this morning, we're looking at the supremacy of God's Son. Looking specifically at verses 4 through 14, the author focuses on the supremacy of God's Son. Specifically, here in these verses, he argues Christ's superiority over 
angels. And in this argument, he relies entirely on the Old Testament, knowing that his recipients, Jewish believers, would not dismiss the authority of the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament seven times, perhaps symbolizing a complete, a full argument that Jesus is superior to angels. He shows that Christ is superior in five different ways. These will be our points for easy note-taking this morning. The first thing is he has a superior name. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He also has superior honor in verse 6. Superior status in verses 7 through 9. He has a superior existence in verse 10 through 12. And the last point, superior vocation in verses 13 through 14. So let's start with the first one, Jesus. The argument is he has a superior name. Look with me again at your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We read, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my beloved son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The author begins in this transition in verse 4 by saying, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christology is the central focus of the theology of Hebrews. And one of the titles of Christ that are central to its Christology is Son of God. This is foundational to everything else in Hebrews. It is foundation to the other title that is uh, prominent throughout the book, which is high priest. But it begins with him being son of God. In verse 5, we see the author has his first quote of the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. When he writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, he picks up on the same way he started this letter. He was speaking about that God continues to speak, and he speaks now through his son. And here he's very deliberate in the verb that he uses. He uses the verb that means to say, not is written. Most of the times in the New Testament, when there's a quote of the Old Testament, you hear, it is written. But now he speaks of God's saying, of speaking, because he is a speaking God. And his point is that, God continues to speak today through the biblical passages that he is citing. And so in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, David prophetically referred to Jesus Christ as God's son. So this term, son of God, is a title referred to Davidic kings and specifically to Jesus Christ, God the son. You know, throughout times in Scripture, you might see like in Job where angels collectively are referred to as sons of God. But never is any individual angel ever addressed as the son of God. That is Christ alone. Son of God is the name that is far superior than that of angels. So the emphatic answer to the question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is none. Not one. 
No angel has ever been told that. And yet as we read this, there's been some confusion by this phrase, today I have begotten you. See, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we read, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that mean about Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus has always been God's son. But the phrase, today I have begotten you, it refers to the exaltation of Christ, the enthronement of the Son following his resurrection. You say, well, where did you get that from? We glean this from Paul in the book of Acts in chapter 13, verses 32 through 33, where Paul proclaims that Jesus' resurrection fulfilled Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I'll read it to you, or you can turn there, Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 33. We read this. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The raising of Christ. It's not that he came into existence. He has always been, always existed. But because of the raising of him, he is now considered in this case, the exalted and enthroned, the king. And the author continues that thought and, and continues in that verse, and he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. If you look at the latter half of verse 5, you'll see he quotes, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, Solomon, Solomon failed to fulfill this, as did all the Davidic kings. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, but He is also the promised Son of David. And we've looked at that at previous sermons, that He is the fulfillment. If you remember when Mary, she gets visited by Gabriel in the Gospel of Luke, and Gabriel comes and speaks to her, telling her she is going to conceive a child. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, listen to what Gabriel said. He said, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, that name alone is superior to that of angels. Secondly, he's got superior honor. Continuing in verse 6, we read, in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So what does he mean by firstborn? We see he speaks of firstborn here in verse 6. The word firstborn here means first in priority and privilege. It means to have first place in everything, highest in rank. It means to have superior status, to be preeminent. It is not chronological. It's an exalted position. And why is that important? Because if you read this wrong or you listen to others who have an erroneous view here, they think that this speaks of Jesus being created. Jesus is not a created being. As a matter of fact, Arianism is a teaching that asserts that Jesus is a created being. And therefore, he is not deity. It began in the fourth century by a clergyman in Egypt named Arius. 
And in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, the teaching was officially denounced as heresy. As it proposes that Jesus was created, it denies that he is God, and it denies the Trinity. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses, as I spoke of before, still hold to a form of this heresy. The truth is that Jesus has existed for all eternity. The opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with them in the beginning. Jesus said this, speaking to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 58. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's always existed. He is the firstborn of all creation. He ranks the highest above all creation. He is preeminent. That's what that means, that he is firstborn. And so here in verse 6, the author quotes, let all God's angels worship him. This is a, a loose translation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, that says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him. And we know at Jesus' first advent that angels worshiped him. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, you'll remember, and suddenly there was with an angel. Excuse me. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Angels worship Jesus. We also know that they worship him in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, as God, rightfully receives praise and worship. Angels, however, are not to be worshipped. Some of you might recall at the end of Revelation in chapter 19, John writes this in verse 9 and 10. He says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And John writes, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The natural response, even of the Apostle John, was to turn and to worship the angel. And the angel had to correct him and say, no, it's about Jesus. He is God. Worship him and worship him alone. This is the same correction that comes to us this morning through Hebrews. It's the same message that went to the original hearers, that Christ alone is to be worshipped, that he is superior to angels, that he is superior in honor, that he alone is to be worshipped. Because thirdly, he has a superior status. If you would turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, we read, 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the sun, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here, the author of Hebrews contrasts the status of angels to the Son. The angels here are servants, but the Son is sovereign king. The first Old Testament quote here is Psalm 104, verse 4. And it points to angels being servants. Again, verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They are servants, and as servants, angels sometimes inhabit wind and fire to do God's bidding. By describing them as winds, the psalmist is drawing attention to their spirit nature, their invisibility, their power, and their role as servants of God. And as flames of fire, they are God's agents of judgment and illumination. The author here is contrasting the servant status of the angels with the status of Jesus. Now, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He said he came to give himself, as a, his life, as a ransom for many. But he is the son of God. And as the son of God, he is the sovereign king. And so Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 is quoted next as a reminder of the righteous reign that will never end the one that will never change. And so we read in verses 8 and 9, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your, compassion, beyond your companions. Jesus is the eternal King of glory. And his kingdom will never end. Psalm 45 was originally addressed to a Hebrew king, but can only be fulfilled by the ultimate Davidic king who is the Son. Jesus is the eternally enthroned, sceptered, and anointed sovereign one. He alone is the sovereign one. There is no other, not the angels. Only Jesus. Angels cannot be compared to him. His status is superior to angels. But not only his status, fourthly, he's got a superior existence. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, the author continues and he quotes and he says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Here he quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And he once again attributes Jesus as the creator the Lord who creates all. This is Jesus. But his main point of quoting here is the immutability of Christ. He is unchanging. Later on in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. 
though everything else will perish, he remains the same. He is eternal and he is unchanging. I want you to think about it. We live in an ever-changing world, don't we? Things are constantly changing. But having a never-changing Savior brings us great comfort. That though everything around us seems to spin out of control and, and things go in certain directions that we would never have planned, our God, our Lord, is unchanging. He is the same. And he will never change. And knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever means that he will always be who he is and he'll always do what he says. Always. Because he is unchanging. There is never a guessing game with Jesus. He will forever be the same. You know, it's sad those who believe in something like reincarnation, like, well, I hope I come back as a fill-in-the-blank. What? Something is one day this way and another day it's gone. But with Christ, it is always the same. His promises are forever. He is a steadfast hope for those who believe and trust in him. When we sang earlier that he will hold us fast. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Praise him for that. That it is not dependent upon our performance, but upon his perfection. Praise our Lord Jesus. He is our steadfast hope. He has a superior existence. He is the eternal and unchanging one. And he, lastly, he has a superior vocation. Verses 13 and 14. We read, into which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the, the final closing argument here for the superior over, superiority over angels. And it's his vocation that Christ rules while angels serve. More specifically, it's about the son that he sits and rules while angels stand and serve. Christ rules supreme. The author here quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted 14 times in the New Testament. Five times alone, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Jesus also quoted it himself in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Jesus, being in the temple, then quotes this same psalm. Why? Because it is Jesus as God's son who sits at the right hand and he rules. He is supreme. And so here in verse 13, we read, to which of the angels did God ever say to the, and this is actually a bookend of what he began earlier in verse 5, which he said, to which of the angels did God ever say? But the answer is the same throughout this argument. In verse 5, he started, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What was the answer to that? None. Not even one. And then again, he says here in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, what is the answer? None. 
Not one. It speaks of Christ's absolute superiority as a conquering ruler. And it's dramatically seen here in that the custom for a defeated king is to prostrate himself and to kiss his conqueror's feet. We read in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But it was also the custom for the victor to put his feet on the captive's neck so that the captive became his footstool. We read an example of this in Joshua chapter 10 in verse 24. We read, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had come, he said, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. This is the imagery here. And and the vindication that's predicted here to make your enemies a footstool will take place when Jesus Christ returns at his second advent. Eventually, every knee will bow. You read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, beloved, you know it's better to bow now than it is to later. And if you're here this morning, you have not bowed to this one who rules and reigns as supreme king, then one day you will bow. But salvation through him will be too late. You'll be bowing under the wrath that is to come from the judgment. And so the cry that goes out now is to come now. To bow now to him as king, to him as Lord. Because Christ is ruling. He is reigning, and he is greater than the angels. Look at the work of these angels in verse 14, last and final verse this morning. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So there's a contrast here. You have on one side Christ's superior ruling vocation, but the angel's vocation is that of serving. Now that's a wonderful vocation. This is not meant to be demeaning at all. It's to be greatly appreciated, and it's intentional by the writer of Hebrews. That Jesus has the superior vocation of ruling, but he gives a reminder that he sends ministering spirits who attend to those who are believing to encourage them in the word. Especially, specifically, as we talk about the original audience, to those who are struggling Just like the original recipients, there are many today who are struggling. And the Son has assigned His angels to minister to His people. He will hold fast. Verse 14, we read that they are sent out. In the Greek, the meaning is that they are perpetually being sent out to help God's people, one after another. That he continues to care for us by sending ministering spirits to care for us. Now listen to these Psalms. Psalm 103, verse 20 through 21. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. He directs them and guides them. 
to come and minister to his people. Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 91, verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Beloved, Jesus protects his people all those who have repented and trusted in him. And to the original audience, this this group of beleaguered Jewish believers, he makes it clear about the supremacy of God's son, that he is far superior to angels, that he has a superior name, that he is God's son, that he has superior honor, that all angels worship him, that he has superior vocation, that he is the sovereign king, that he has a superior existence, that he is eternal and unchangeable, and he has a superior status, that he rules the universe. Christ is superior in every way, and he alone is the way to salvation. There is salvation in no other. He alone is Lord, and he alone is Savior. And beloved, as we sang it, he will Hold you fast. He is faithful. We're to look to him, to gaze upon him. That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is unchanging. But if you are here this morning and you have not believed in Christ, many of you have not placed your hope, your trust in the finished work of the cross of Christ, then I urge you, don't wait any longer. If you're thinking that you need to turn to Christ, you need to understand that is a work of God's Spirit in you, showing that you you need to turn to Christ, to trust in Him, because as a sinner, you are storing up the wrath of God. That your sin is rebellion against a holy God. And that wrath will be poured out. But for all who believe in Christ, He paid the full penalty that it is finished. There is forgiveness, and it's in Christ alone that he laid down his life as a substitute. For all who believe the penalty is paid, paid in full, paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, repent and to believe this good news of Jesus Christ. Before we close in a word of prayer this morning, let's bow our heads and reflect on the supremacy of God's Son. Father, we come before you and collectively we praise you for the supremacy of your Son. As creator of all, he is far superior to everything else. As we've seen this morning, he is far greater than angels. And though we are thankful for him sending us ministering spirits to strengthen and to protect us, we are most thankful for salvation that is found in him alone. We pray that anyone hearing this message would, by your grace, humbly turn and trust Christ as Lord and Savior. In all these things, may you receive all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.